We're in the book of Romans. Romans is an incredible book of Scripture. And in fact, I've heard it said that if, if we only had one, if we could only keep one book of the Bible, many have argued for Romans with the gospel, the theology that's in that book. And, I mean, really... You think about the highlight, so to speak, Romans 1. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the, the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes, first for the Jews and then for the, the Gentiles. And the righteous will live by faith. That's Romans 1. Romans 2 and 3 is the gospel of man's sinfulness. You know, there's no one who does good, not even one all have turned away. They have all together become worthless. The whole world stands silence before God. No one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. And then, of course, Romans 3 But now a righteousness has been made known apart from the law to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by His grace. The redemption that came by Jesus Christ. And then this redemption by faith Romans 4 and 5, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The rest of that is, you see, at just the right time, while we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, Though for a good man, someone might possibly dare to die, but God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. <clears throat> and then you get into like schizophrenic Paul, where, you know, Romans 7, I do not understand what I do, for what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it's sin living in me that does it. For I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For what I do is not the good I want to do. For the evil I do not, that is what I want to do. But this I keep doing. And if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin living in me that does it. He says, what a wretched man I am. And then, of course, that leads us to Romans 8. We're getting ready to go and camp out in Romans 9. But Romans 8, one of the most triumphant chapters in all of Scripture. There is therefore now no condemnation to who is living in Christ Jesus. 
Because the law of the Spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And then it continues... That's why we know that in all things, all things work together for the good of those who love Him and have been called according to His purpose. For those God foreknew, He predestined to be conformed to the likeness of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those He predestined, He called. Those He called, He justified. And those He justified, He glorified. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for all of us, will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, or the present or the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And then you get to, to Romans chapter 9. And it is the chapter, along with chapter 10 and 11, that <clears throat> is skipped most often in reading and preaching. And so that is why we're going to look at it today, because we're going through the, the entire book of the Bible. And so in doing so, we're going to hit some hard things as well. And so I want you to hear Romans chapter 9. And I've entitled this, The, the Marvel of God's Mercy. The Bible says in Romans chapter 9, I speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience confirms it, confirms it in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption as sons. Theirs the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of Christ, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. It is not as though God's word had failed, for not all who are descendants from Israel are Israel. Nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it is not the natural children who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. For this was how the promise was stated. At the appointed time, I will return and Sarah will have a son. Not only that, but Re Rebekah's children 
had one and the same father, our father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not therefore depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy and he hardens whom he wants to harden. One of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? For who resists his will? But who are you, O man, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to him who formed it, Why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for noble purposes and some for common use? What if God, choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory? Even us, whom he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles? As he said in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people, and I will call her my loved one who is not my loved one. And it will happen that in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people. They will be called sons of the living God. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the Israelites be like the sand by the sea, only the remnant will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence on earth with speed and finality. It is just as Isaiah said previously, unless the Lord Almighty had left us descendants, we would have become like Sodom, we would have been like Gomorrah. What then shall we say? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it, a righteousness that is by faith, but Israel who pursued a law of righteousness has not attained it? Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, see, I lay it, in Zion, a stone that causes men to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Y'all, that's a mouthful. Let's pray. Father, you know that I am not up to this task of explaining and delivering your word. Father, we need your spirit. And Father, I pray that by your spirit, we would hear, understand, and, and respond to your word. And so, Lord, I pray that you would remove me from this. Take me out of the way. And, Father, I pray that you would teach us and inspire us by your word and through your spirit that we might know you 
and love you and thereby bring you great glory. For we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So there is a ton in this book. And it seems to go from one thing to the other. It seems to get very deep at times, and at other times fairly easy to explain. And so I'm going to start at the beginning and just go through some truths that that we can hold on to and, and work through the text. Interestingly, the first thing I believe I want us to hit on is that we long for the salvation of others. Think about where you are in your relationship with Christ. He created us to love Him. We, he created us to, to worship Him. He created us to, to make disciples, to tell others about Christ. But do we have this level that Paul has? The first five verses. Paul is a Jew among Jews. And so Paul knows the truth about the gospel. And he's in anguish that his brothers and sisters, his fellow Israelites, do not get it. They are not embracing Christ. And so he says in verse 3, For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, those of my own race, the people of Israel. And so he's saying, what a rich heritage they have. They have, the, they have the law, they have the prophets, and through them, even Christ came into the earth. But they aren't getting it. They don't get it. They didn't accept the gospel, and so they are cursed. And he wished, he said, I wish I could take on the curse, and if it meant their salvation, I would give up mine. That's commitment to making disciples of the whole world. I would give up my salvation and burn in hell if it would cause them to believe. That's commitment to the gospel. It burdens me that I am not burdened like that for the lost I'm not burdened like that for my neighbors I'm not burdened like that for my brothers it was interesting that over this Thanksgiving holiday we went to Greensboro and that's where Joyce's family lives and so we spent some time with, with them but just in two unplanned events I had the opportunity to spend time with each of my two brothers individually. And one, we go to the hunting store, and the other one, we worked on building handrails for Joyce's parents. And so, in this time, every time that I see and spend time with my brothers, I think about the fact that they don't know Christ. They haven't trusted Christ. They've rejected Him and have decided to live their lives for themselves. 
and I think about how I could speak life, how I can share the gospel, how I can model the gospel, and all of these things and these, these rare opportunities that I have, but still, compared to Paul, this is, I don't measure up. I don't come close. But it does share to me, oh, that we should long for the salvation of others. And, and this, when he is, is saying, I would give up my salvation for the salvation of Israel, this is not an argument for theologians to have. This isn't saying that we can give up our salvation so that others could have it like giving somebody else one of my deer tags and they could have it kind of thing. It's not like that kind of thing. This is this is certainly not an argument, a theological argument. This is an affection for Christians to feel. This is something for us to just like where I am, this is something for us. Do I have an affection for lost people like this? Do I care this deeply for people who are under the curse because they haven't trusted Christ? And even, perhaps, even entire people groups, entire nations that haven't heard or that have totally rejected Him. And so we long for the salvation of others. But secondly, we lean on the faithfulness of God. We lean on the faithfulness of God. This is verse 6. Verse 6 says, It is not as though God's word has failed, for not all who are descendants from Israel are Israel. So I want to, to take some time to teach, to explain. There's a lot of, of hard things in this chapter to grasp. And so I want to spend time as we slowly go through this chapter. It, what's going on here is Israel is a part of history. And God chose Israel to be his people. We all get that, right? Reading through the Old Testament, it's obvious. God chose Israel. He set them apart as a people group. Did that mean that they were perfect? Absolutely not. As we have read through the text, we get it. They stunk at following Christ or at following God often. In fact, most of the time. And so, but what Paul is saying here is, even though they are God's chosen people, it is... I mean, we cannot deny God's election. God elected them. He chose them. However, not all of Israel is going to heaven. And so, it's not based on who we are. Israel thought, because we're Israel, He can't touch us. He, he set us apart. We have the name Israel on us. And so we are God's people. He said we're his people. So how could we possibly even need this salvation of Christ? Because God will not possibly do anything to us. 
Paul is certainly setting the record straight here. And when he lists all of the things that Israel has going for them, theirs is the adoption of sons, theirs the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs from whom and from them is traced the human ancestry of Christ, who is God over all. But in verse 6, God's word hasn't failed. For not all who are descended from Israel are Israel, nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary. In other words, what he is saying here, just because they have Israel in their ancestry, they don't necessarily have Christ in their hearts and thus don't have heaven in their future. And so it's not based on who we are. You know, his, his call to salvation is unconditional. He calls us to be saved. Not based on who we are. It's not based on what we have done. It's not based on how we would respond even. And these are the things that make it tough. And he is teaching through this. And he is saying... Through Isaac, it's through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it's not the natural children who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. So it's not just because you're a Hebrew that you're going to inhabit heaven forever. It is not the natural children, but God's children. For this is how the promise was stated. At the appointed time, I will return and Sarah will have a son. And so he's pointing out the people in the plan, the people in the ancestry of Christ. And so hang with me. It's going to get easier to get in a minute. And so you have the twins. He even refers to yet before the twins were born, Jacob and Esau... Something something in this picture is a great teaching tool because you have twins, right? They have the same mom, the same dad. They were they have the same people group. They were both born at the same time. They had everything in common. Same ethnicity, same birthday. But yet, God himself said, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. The issue here is it had nothing to do with Jacob and Esau. It had everything to do with God. He's pointing it out. that It doesn't matter who your mom and dad is. It matters who your Savior is. Like I heard as a kid, God doesn't have any grandchildren that just because I am a believer, it doesn't make my children automatic believers. They have to trust Christ for themselves. Just like Israelites, just because you're a Jew, it doesn't mean you automatically go to heaven. It is because you trust Christ. And that is what is grieving Paul because his brothers and sisters as, you know, as Jews 
aren't trusting Christ. In fact, they're rejecting Him. And so, all through the Bible, as we have gone through, we have learned that it is one book, one author, one message. And that message is that we were created for His glory. And so if we exist for His glory, it puts into perspective all of these things. The bottom line is we exist only because of the mercy of God. He, do, he could righteously wipe us all off of the planet and still be righteous right now. And so the fact that we breathe at all is because of the mercy of God. And so that brings up questions, as, as it should bring up questions. Does God desire for everyone to be saved? Does, does God love everyone in the world? Well, yes, of course. We know John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whosoever would believe in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. We get that. But yet, not all are saved. And so how do you, how do you get this? So does God really create people to inhabit hell? So how do you, how do you make all of these things make sense biblically? I want to stop here and ask when I say Calvinism, who in here has a clue what I'm talking about? Anybody ever heard of Calvinism? All right. Very good. So we're going to talk about this for a little bit as we go through this text. And it makes perfect sense to do so in this context with Romans 9. I want us to to look at the will of God and remember the, I guess, the multiple perceptions of the will of God. The, the permissive will, the perfect will. And, and what I mean by this is, in God's revealed will, God's revealed will is, is really what He declares in His Word. For example, do not murder. It is the will of God that we not murder. It is God's revealed will that we avoid sexual immorality, do not lie, etc. But then God's hidden will, God's secret will, the will that we don't know, it's what He decrees in the world. In other words, when I sin, though I'm a child of God, does that mean that God's will is, uh, He was wrong? And I can see minds blowing right now, but hang with me. What I want to get to is that, let's look at the cross for a minute. 
I believe, and I believe that you believe, that it was God's will to send His Son to die on the cross. Right? Would we all agree on that? Alright, so it was God's will that His Son be killed. But it is also God's will that we not murder. Though it was God's will that His Son be murdered. So think through that a second. Right? It's confusing, isn't it? And so here's what I'm saying. Through this text, difficult text, that is why preachers skip it. And they go from Romans 8, Romans 12, baby. And they leave out 9, 10, and 11. Because it's hard. It is hard to think through these things, but we need to think through this. And, and here's why. God is so far above us. He is beyond us. And, and we have this tendency to think that God's just a little smarter than us. You know, if we have an IQ of 100, God's got to at least be pushing 104, right? I mean, but it's not that way at all. He's so far beyond us. Even the stuff that we read that Paul is trying to clear up about some confusing things of the faith blow our stinking minds. And this is Paul. This is another person. And so, there are multiple dimensions of, of the love of God as well. You know, there is a general, God's general love for all people, right? God loves the people of the world, red and yellow, black and white, right? The theological song of our, of our past. But, he also has declared a particular love for certain people. For Israel, for those who are in Christ. It doesn't mean that he hates those who aren't. He sent his son to die for them, right? And so he has a general love for all people, particular love for some people. And This is a difficult text because it makes us think about this. When we talk about God's call to salvation, you know, we're talking about what God decrees in His Word that He longs for everybody to be saved. But then we have the will, our free will, to not choose Him. But yet, if He doesn't choose us, then we can't choose him. See, every time you say anything like this, it's just, again, there it goes again. I thought I was hanging on. It sounds like algebra. In ninth grade, I took algebra one, and I believe that they are going to do algebra in hell. It's horrible. And I was a good student in everything except algebra. And I, I went to school, I listened, and I would just I would hang on. And the teacher would be working problems and explaining the next level of algebra on the board. And, and I was just, I was into it. I was thinking, hang on, hang on, no distractions. I got this. I got it, okay? I get it. 
I get it. And she would continue and explain and go a little deeper. And she would, and I'm thinking, I got it. I got it. I don't have it. It's like, oh, I was there. I thought I had it. And then, oh, man. And so that's how it is with the text. We try to hang on. We try to hang on. And then he loves or he doesn't love. Which is it? Is it his will or is it not his will? And how is murder right but murder's wrong? And then they murdered his son, but he said, do not kill. What is going on here? All of this, all of this comes down to this. And here's where I want us to hold on. His call, his call to salvation is effectual. And what I mean by that is it accomplishes its purpose. It accomplishes its intended effect. And Paul in, in Romans 9 and he says his word has not failed. He accomplished what he set out to do. In other words, those that God calls will be saved. And, and just to get to the bottom line of this, I'm not a Calvinist. And I'm not even sure that John Calvin is a Calvinist, according to the definitions of some. And I believe that God sent His Son to die for the sins of the world. But I believe at the same time, He gives everybody in the world the opportunity to choose Him. And some walk away and some don't. But I also believe that God knows who will walk away. He knows our choice before we choose. But here's what I know. If He didn't choose us, we wouldn't choose Him. And so, I get into these preacher conversations all the time. And it seems like it's one of those things that pastors, when they get together, they want to talk about this. And it about makes me want to vomit. Because I want to, to be careful with the text. And I want everything I do to come from the text. And I mean the Bible text, not Calvin's Institutes on the Christian Religion, which is enormous, which I own it, and I had to read it, and it's horrible. But anyway, my issue is I refuse to take a stand on what is developed by a person, but I feel I must take a stand on what is written by God. And so there is a time where Calvinism is very popular and other times it's not. There's places where it is popular and places where it's not. And so my response always is, is I refuse to even debate it. I've had this, this discussion in Gates County already too. I refuse to debate it. Because every second that I'm debating the words of a man, I'm costing myself time from the Word of God. And if I consistently spend my time studying the Word, if it happens to follow with this tenet of Calvinism, 
then people are going to say, well, you're a Calvinist. But then if you're studying it and you follow Christ, and it happens to look like Arminianism or something else, then, oh, man, you must... That's why we focus on the Word. We don't turn away from the Word. And if Calvinist happens to be pleased while we're focusing on the Word, God bless them. If they don't like us, will of God. (laughs) And so, some truths to hold on to here. We do not deserve God's mercy. Verse 14, what shall we say then? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. And so, is this injustice on God's part? Of course not. Because he's God, and he can do exactly what he wants to do. And so, for us, he would be just to condemn all of us, as I said before. But, he is gracious to save any of us. It's God's grace. And I've I've had conversations with with young people over the years that just can't get past this. I don't want a God, they will say, where if you don't do what He says, you go to hell. I don't want a God where there's judgment. I'm not going to serve a God where there's punishment if you don't do this or you don't love him that's selfish and I step away from them just in case there's lightning but the point is we don't we don't get it how dare we defy God's authority he's God I believe that and what I try to explain is that if you had a proper definition or a proper description of who God is according to who God says He is, then you would understand how dumb your comments are. We do not deserve God's mercy. We dare not defy God's authority. I think that This is one of my favorite parts of this text, most likely because it's the easiest part to understand. Verse 19, he brings in another person. Name one of you. In verse 19, one of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? For who resists his will? And so where he's getting at here, the context here is, Remember Pharaoh when God hardened his heart and then all of the plagues came and not coronavirus, but the flies and the blood and all of that stuff, right? And still his heart was hardened. And and we learn in the text that God hardened his heart. We knew he wasn't going to 
to say, all right, you can go, because God hardened his heart. And so what Paul is, is saying is, God could harden his heart if he wants to, because he's God. But in our sin, we can't say, well, God hardened my heart, so it's God's fault. God is creator. We are creature. And we get that confused sometimes. And so, but who are you, O man, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed Say to him who formed it, why did you make me like this? Y'all, that's America right there. They fought God for not making them how they feel like he should, but then accuse God of making them in the bad way that they have done themselves. God made me homosexual. That is garbage from the pit of hell. It's that all the time. Like you're left-handed. Come on. Read a book. Like this one. You know. Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for noble purposes and some for common uses? You know, so from the same tree that God made could be made the greatest of sculpture and toilet paper. You know, now that might not be the greatest of illustrations anymore, but because both are pretty precious. <laughs> but he's the creator. We are the creature. You know, it's it's like the every one of us in here have been a parent or a child, right? And so a kid saying to the parent, you're not the boss of me. You can't tell me what to do. You know that the hair on the back of your neck that stands up when I say that? Those who have been parents, you get it, right? I'll tell you what I can do. That's right. Sit down, boy! You know, I mean, how dare you? How dare you defy me, the parent? You peon little kid? That's how I see when, when we would dare defy God and pretend that we are the creator. And we put ourselves in equality with God. He is the owner. And get this, we are the owned America, try that on. We are owned. It's not just what happens on the basketball court when somebody owns you. Like, God literally made us. He owns us. And He can do with us what He wants. It puts into perspective who we are. He is God, and we're not. And that is simply the truth. Hard truth to swallow sometimes. 
but we do not have the right to, to judge his ways. We might not like them, and, and we don't. Death is a horrible thing. Why now? Why him? Why her? Why like this? Why am I dealing with this kind of stuff? Or I try to be godly and I deal with this and the most godless person I know is, is living it up and why God? Why God? You know, but he has the right to do what he wants. He simply does. That's part of what it means to be God. And you know why we don't know that? Because we're not God. He can do what he wants. And the Bible says his ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And, and we know that, but sometimes it gets cloudy and we really think, you think, you think God needs me to like tell him this? Because certainly he's forgotten me. Or certainly he's forgotten this. But in all of this, I want to make this part clear too. We're about done, but we must not diminish our responsibility. And while God is God and in full authority, He has given us responsibility as well. He's given us free will. God is sovereign, but we're accountable. We are accountable to Him. And, and this is where Pharaoh is a great illustration for us. God, God showed His hand and told us that He hardened Pharaoh's heart. But Pharaoh still was responsible for his actions and paid the consequences for those actions. Is it fair? No, it's not fair. Pharaoh should not have been born at all, perhaps. Pharaoh may have, could have been died at, killed at birth. It's not fair, but it's not fair on the other way, that he was allowed to live at all, just like you and me. Is it fair? No, it's not fair. We get far more than we deserve. But in this... What this chapter points out to me, and it's what I want to leave us with, is the way this text ends, is we live for the glory of God. We live for the glory of God. He doesn't live for our glory. We live for His glory. And... It brought him glory in perhaps a way that I don't understand that Pharaoh's heart was hardened. You know, and he says, could it have been that God hardened your heart so that the character of God was on display for the whole world for all time to see? And that very well could have been the total reason why Pharaoh was ever born. I don't know that. But God has that right. We live for the glory of God. And as we, 
draw near to Christmas, as we get our minds set on celebrating the fact that Jesus came to earth and was born as a baby, this chapter says to me that there, while there was nothing to draw us to God, you know, there was nothing in us to draw God to us. Yet He came. As we celebrate Christmas, as we think about the fact that God's Son was born to a people that would murder Him, there was nothing that when God looked on us, you know how you look on a baby and you say, oh my goodness, those cheeks or those dimples or that smile or whatever. When He looked on us, <laughs> none of that happened. He said, man, they are just adorable. Let me go save them. We were wretched. But he still came, guys. He still came. And so this should cause us to marvel at God's mercy. And so theologically, I want us to get from this the fact that anything happens beyond us just dying is the hand of God's mercy. He, he can righteously wipe us out at any moment, and yet we live. And not only do we live, but He gives us the right to be adopted as sons and daughters of His, to be called His, to have the Holy Spirit of God dwell in us. And this is, you know, something... All right, I'm a gardener. And sometimes I will just sow things real thick and then you go back and you take some out because you want, you know, you plant a thousand, but you want 75 to live. And so I have the authority to go pluck up whatever that math is, all but the 75, right? Which ones will I pluck up? The ones I want. Why are the 75 there? Because I have mercy on them. Do they have a purpose? Yes, to do what I want them to do. They are there for me. They are there because I spared them. They are there because I planted them. They are where I put them. They serve my purpose. That illustration does break down, but the fact that 75 were allowed to live their purpose is because I chose them could the other 925 not look at me and say well what about us we're as good as them or why did you even plant us if all our existence was to be torn up and thrown into the compost pile why because that's what I wanted I'm the gardener you exist for me now does that sound selfish yeah but I'm not God And what I'm saying is, we're one of the 75, you know. God has had mercy and allowed us to live. He is calling us to Him. And so let us run to Him and have a better picture of who God is and the character of His mercy that He has on us that allows us to know the God of the universe as our Dad.
And so if you do not know Christ, perhaps you know about Him, but you've never trusted Him, let me encourage you. Run to Him. Run to Him. He has, he has provided for you. He has provided for your existence. He has provided for your air to breathe. He has kept you alive, perhaps even for this moment, to hear the word of truth, that the Holy Spirit would blow it alive into your life. That you would hear, God is an awesome God, and He wants me to be His. Get that. Don't let that opportunity go. And if you, if you need to speak more on this, oh, I would love to speak to you. And, and several others in this body would love to as well. But I want to pray and, and just allow God and His Spirit to speak to us. And, and hopefully nothing I've said from my mouth would talk you into anything but it would be what God is speaking to your heart and if I will be up here at the front the band will come we'll sing and this time is set aside for us to think through and act on these things and so as this occurs I want to pray that God's will will be done for his glory so would you stand as we pray Father, we, we are so blown away by the things in your word. But Lord, thank you for reminding us of, of your love for us and your mercy that you have on us. And so Lord, I pray that as we have this opportunity to, to respond to you, even in these hard sayings, the things that, that are hard to agree with or that gives us a headache to even think through. Lord, help us to hold to these truths that it is your mercy that allows us to exist anyway. But Lord, in these moments, we just thank you for coming to us when there is no way on this earth we would have ever come to you. Thank you for dying for us. Thank you, Lord, for loving us. Thank you for giving us hope for eternal life. And not just eternal life, like the staying alive, but co-heirs and ruler with the God of the universe. Help us to not shy away from this. Help us to not run away from you or to explain this away or redefine who we think you are. But to open our heart to who you say you are and that trust you by faith. And Lord, those who know you personally, glorify you greatly. But Lord, those who don't, I pray that you would call, that you would awaken. And that today would be the day of salvation for them. So Lord, go before us as we worship you in Christ's name. Amen.